Good morning. Uh, Scott's not going to be here this morning. He's attending a funeral right now with, uh, with his wife or uh, her father. And uh, so let's keep them in our, our prayers as they are going to be returning home. Um, and just remember that family as they're struggling with this. Uh, Derek, I, I can certainly relate to this idea of your wife's heart rate going up when you come up here. Um, I suspect that lots and lots of heart rates go up when they see me come up here. <laughs> so, uh, several years ago, uh, one of the young members of this church, his name was David Dunlap, uh, came up to me. He was, he was the, the person that was in charge of the uh, high school retreat. And he came up to me and said, hey, Trey, I want to do this high school retreat, and I'd like you to be, uh, teach at this high school retreat. And I said, okay, so what's the theme? He goes, aliens. And I went, okay, um, I'm going to need a little more. Uh, and he said, yeah, I, I really want you to talk about the passage in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2 where he says, Dear brothers, I entreat you as aliens and strangers to abstain from the sinful desires which war against your soul and to live such good lives among the, the pagans that even though they accuse you of doing wrong in the final days will rise up and, and glorify God. And I, I looked at that passage, those two verses, and I thought, now I have to make this passage go an entire weekend. And so I had to think about it an awful lot. And as I studied that passage, as I read different aspects of, of, of how it connected with other Bible verses, it, in, in a sense, it sort of informed my whole theology. Because when I think about that verse, I feel like that's the verse that is the one that guides me. And it should guide most of us. And this idea that we live our lives among the other people, the alien, we live as aliens and strangers, we live our lives among other people and we do it in such a way that we are a blessing to them. And I'm reminded of the passage in the, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is, is talking to everybody out there and he says, he says um, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So I want to do is spend a second talking about salt. Um, first of all, all organisms, all, all, all animals certainly on this planet have to have salt to live. Salt is essential. It's not a, it's not a you know, an option Every one of us has salt. Every organism that's moving around out there has salt. It's essential for life. It's also something that makes food better. You don't sit down at the table and, you know, look at your almond-encrusted soul and take a bite of it and say, ooh, this is really good. I think I'm going to ruin it with some salt. We don't do that. We put salt on things to make them more flavorful, to make them better. And when Jesus calls us salt of the earth, I think he's saying just that. He's saying you are being charged to go out in the world and make it better. Salt is an antiseptic. You put salt on wounds, or they certainly they used to um, and, and still can, but what it does is it, it, it kills germs. Salt is used to heal. And when Jesus calls us salt, he's saying that you are people that are going to go out into the community and you're going to heal. And salt is a preservative. Salt, salt keeps things from spoiling. And when Jesus tells us, you are the salt of the earth, he's telling us we're going to go out 
and, and we're going to keep things from going bad. And I think sometimes we miss that, right? Uh, that when we are called salt, we are being called to so many different things. And Jesus expects us to be all of those things. But the question is how? Where does this start? And so I'm going to tie these two verses together, this idea of being an alien and stranger in this world with this idea of us being a salt, a force for good, a force for healing, a force for preserving, a force for, for making things better. And that's what we are all called to do in our community. And so what we're going to do now is uh, Scott has made a little video that we're going to show, and then I'll finish this up after, after this is over. We're here at Caesarea Philippi. Uh, this is an interesting location. You remember in scripture whenever Jesus and his followers were around the regions of Caesarea Philippi and he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Well, interesting about Caesarea Philippi is that this is the home, basically the center of Pan worship. Pan was the Roman god of fertility, fun, excitement, anything you can think of that involved, uh, you know, debauchery or whatever. You know, this is where people would come to celebrate Pan and to worship him. And what's interesting is when Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? Well, the answers range from Jeremiah, um, the prophets. But Peter says, you are Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. We call that the Great Confession. But Jesus also says, you are right, Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And what's interesting is that this entire location here is basically one giant rock. And so when you think about this entire section of scripture, from the perspective of that rock that Jesus is building his church on, what you see is that Jesus is going to build his church right in the middle of the place where people are looking for God. Now, granted, people here are looking for Pan. They're looking for a God that will make them feel better. But what Jesus is saying is that I am going to build my church right in the middle of the place where you deem the most inappropriate, the most vile, the most worldly that there is to offer. No matter how hard you try, you cannot escape culture. The apostles couldn't do it. Jesus wouldn't do it. In fact, this is why he prayed in John 17 that God not take his apostles, his believers, his followers out of the world, but that he protects them from the evil one. This tells me that as Christians, as believers, we have a responsibility and we have a mission to, to not only help, but to help people make lasting connections with God through Jesus Christ, through the culture. You know, looking at the methods of Jesus, what we see is that he found a way to engage people in their space, uh, in their culture, in their community. And I believe really that it is within that culture that you find those threads of connection, those threads of, 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 of history those threads of opportunity. Jesus came 
to the world and he made his home among us. He made his home in the midst of a family, in the midst of a community, in the midst of a nation. And it was within the confines of those three areas that he changed the world. God's desire is not only to save the world, but it is to bless the world. In Romans 2, Paul tells us that God's kindness was meant to lead us to repentance. So when God's people are taken into captivity into Babylon, it seems hopeless. They were led into a culture that was vastly different than theirs, even offensive. But even though they they felt like the situation was hopeless, God was still kind to them. And he wanted to bless them and to bless others. So the prophet Jeremiah writes them this letter on God's behalf, and he gives them hope. He tells them, build houses. He says, settle down. He says, go ahead and get married. Give your sons and daughters in marriage. He says, have children, have a lot of children. And he says to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. He tells them to pray for the city because if the city prospers, then they will prosper. And God told them rescue was coming, but not yet. So did the Babylonian way of life coincide with the Jewish way of life? Not really. The cultures were so different. But nevertheless, Jesus said, even a little bit of yeast works its way through the whole dough. And this is what happens when the people of God live their way in the midst of their culture. Their way starts to show influence and starts to move and work its way through their culture. Especially when they're doing that, trying to love and serve their neighbor. So when Jesus asks this to the group at Caesarea Philippi, I believe there's a larger point to be made. Where is God going to set up shop in the coming venture? You know, he never intended to be confined to four walls and a mountaintop. He wasn't satisfied with just waiting for us to come to him. So he came to us. And and so whenever he came to us, he did so through a little family. He did so through a community. He did so through a nation. Now in the region surrounding Caesarea Philippi, he tells us that his new home was going to be right in the middle of the culture. Right in the middle. Now I know this resonated with his followers because I wonder if they were thinking about this when they made their way out of that upper room on the day of Pentecost. You know, they could have done something very different. They could have been like the Essenes, who were uh, another group of people like the Pharisees or the Sadducees. Uh, They could have done like them, and they could have withdrawn to the desert. They could have spent all their time in their private synagogue, growing their little community one child at a time, but that's not what they did. See, the Essenes, they withdrew themselves from culture because they just thought everything was corrupt and unsavable. But the early church thought there was hope. This sounds a lot different than when Jesus told his followers at Caesarea. His idea was that his followers wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't withdraw from the world, but instead they would engage with it. And, and in fact, his church would, would be right in the middle of the very best and the worst of culture. You know, I've been all across America and I absolutely love San Angelo. I love it because it's a really big, small town. You know, I love the people here. I love how our community loves one another. 
what I love is that they're so generous. You know, the San Angelo Area Foundation has an event called San Angelo Gives, and it's really, it's unique. There's not a lot of cities that do that, and whenever they hold that, people in this community, they step up uh, because they care for one another. You know, they care for our city. You know, there are people here who absolutely love nature, and what they've done is they've designed a flow and space that, that, that creates places of peace and quiet, tranquility. You know, there are people here who are dedicated to educating the emerging generations. Uh, they absolutely love what they do. Uh, ASU, Angelo State University, has huge enrollment this year because there are people who love education. They love to help people learn new and important things. And there are students here from, from around the world, as well as locally. There's a thriving arts culture in San Angelo. Did you know that we have the oldest community theater in Texas? And what this means is that there's always a musical or a play going on because there are groups of people in this community that are dedicated to showing this community joy and challenging us with issues that, that, that challenges our notion of fairness and compassion. We also have artists here, and a lot of them, who like to do things in a little different way. Some have used the front and the backs of our buildings in San Angelo as their canvas. Some artists in this community even use the human body as canvas. There are people trying to explore beauty and show the world through, through art in so many different ways. That includes the artists that are in our medical community. These are people who are dedicated to healing and to showing uh, compassion and also having people have lives that are fulfilling. They're dedicated to the well-being of others. You know, in every part of San Angelo, you have people who are bringing beauty, uh, texture to the ordinary and the mundane. And we have a very spiritual atmosphere here too. We have a lot of churches here and many of them are not still. They're moving because they are compassionate. Now, people here may not agree on every little thing, but they are looking for God. And our environment in many ways is very similar to that culture in those early Christian circles where they found themselves. There were artists there. There were people who loved their community. There were people who loved their nation. There were people who were dedicated to learning and to family and to health and well-being. There were people desperately looking for God, and they were searching for beauty wherever they found themselves. Their culture was not too different than ours. In fact, our cultures are similar in many ways. They were very spiritually minded. This is why Paul tells us in Ephesians, he opens and closes this letter by appealing to the spiritual. He says, blessed is the Lord God, Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then he closes his letter by saying, remember, your battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the powers and the forces, the spiritual forces of evil. His audience was very aware of the spiritual. They were very curious as how the gods could help them and their families. Many of them were seeking God, gods, anything that would help. It's the same way here in many ways. You know, although people don't necessarily go to church, it doesn't mean they aren't looking for God. It doesn't mean they aren't longing for something that can help. The early culture uh, was very aware of the spiritual world. 
And many people were looking for a God that wasn't simply an idea or an idol or something they just placed in their home. It's the same today. People around you are looking for hope. They're looking for something real to believe in. So how will we engage that culture? How will we engage with a culture who, who may be looking for God in all the wrong places? Now remember, the message of the early church, it's still our message, and it is very clear. And that is this, you are loved so much that someone died for your mistakes. Someone died for the, the wrong things you've done. So what do you do? You repent. You, you get baptized. And then what will happen is God will, will give you His Holy Spirit. And He will forgive you of your sins and you will be clean. This is the message. And that message in the early church spread like wildfire. In fact, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord, it says, will be saved. So this message was repeated over and over in that early church. It was repeated uh, loudly and also quietly in personal, loving conversations. And what caused this message to spread like wildfire in their culture was that every single word that they said was backed up by a life that was lived. Every, Every message that came out of them was backed up by a life that absolutely believed what they were saying. Their words backed up by a very real life of love and work. In some ways, our cultures aren't that different. Our stories aren't that different from those people in the early church, but the same Spirit of God that inhabited those early believers, it's the same Spirit of God that inhabits us even today. And that same Spirit is moving us to engage our community, our culture with His transforming love. You know, no matter how hard you try, you can't escape your culture. But this is where God has placed us. There's opportunity, there's potential, May God give you the courage to engage your culture. So Scott mentioned a couple of things. He talked about some different episodes in the, in the biblical narrative uh, that, that he said, you know, this, this was an example of when God was expecting people to live into the culture. When he's, he's talking about uh, specifically the Babylonian captivity and and. Uh, Jeremiah the prophet was telling the people no no you need to engage in the in the community there you need to stay part of that community you'll be bringing good to that community Uh, he talked about the moment uh, on the day of Pentecost when uh, the apostles had received the spirit and and as he pointed out they didn't just um, sequester themselves they didn't just get you know go into hiding but they actually took that out and they brought it to the community and they changed the world and as I was looking through this, I was thinking, well, there are some inflection points all throughout history where this happens, and then it hit me, not really. That's not actually true. That's been God's plan all along. Do you remember when God first called, uh, when he first called Abram to, to, be, uh, to be this nation that he was going to build, and he gave him three promises, the third of which was um, 
Through you and through your seed, all nations of the world will be blessed. That's been his plan all along. God's plan was always to use his people to bless others. And that's still his plan now. God still expects us to be a blessing to the entire world. If you uh, were in class this morning, you probably talked about the section where uh, John the Baptist is preaching and he gets up and he says uh, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do you remember what their response was? Their response wasn't, whoo, that was harsh or whoa, that's that, that too much. Their response was, what should we do? The people went to him and said, what should we do? And the tax collectors went to him and said, what, what, what should we do? And the soldiers, some of the soldiers went to him and said, what should we do? And I'm telling you now, that's the question we all should be asking. Everybody in this room should be doing something. And if you think, well, my time has passed, I shouldn't be doing anything anymore, or I'm going to let this, I'm going to pass this on to somebody else, that's not right. I'm reminded of uh, a Blessed to be a Blessing I went to several years ago, and, uh, and uh, Quintus was, was walking around with a little tiny basket, kind of, and I took pictures of it because it, it made me laugh, but it, in some ways it was um, emblematic of, of how we should all be. No matter who we are, we should be involved. We should be asking, what should we do? And if you don't know, if you don't know what you should do, talk to Sam. Sam's got some ideas for things you can do. Talk to Jason. Talk to Elizabeth. Talk to Stephanie Oviedo. Talk to David Ingram. Talk to Sherry Elkins. Find someone and say, what can I do? And if you're thinking, okay, you know what? Um, I don't think I'm worthy I don't think I, 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 I have enough knowledge. I don't think I have enough, I, enough gifts. I don't think I, I, and I just don't even know what to do. Talk to the elders. We'll pray with you about that. We'll spend time with you and discuss that with you. You know, Jesus famously said, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. We need to change that. And we need to get to work. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time this, together this morning, and I pray that, uh, that we would realize every one of us in this room has a role to play, that we are to be out in your world and be ministering to your world and uh, to be making your world a better place. And Father, that's what you call us to do. That's what you expect us to do. So we, we pray that we would uh, be faithful to our calling. And we ask this through your son, Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.